0: Lexicon Valley is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes.
0: Lexicon Valley is also brought to you by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com lexicon. That's texture.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 73, a new installment of Linguophile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer.
0: Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. Ben, how are you, and what is our clue?
3: I'm doing just fine, and I've got a great word for you guys today. The word is actually the answer to an old riddle. What do you get when you cross an owl and a goat?
2: A hootenanny?
3: Ah, Bob got it right away. There you go. Who nanny?
0: I'm not even really sure. I know exactly what that is. Well, a nanny goat and an owl hoots. No, I get the joke. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm not really sure what a hoot nanny
2: is. Want to break it is. down for you here? Oh, you don't know what a hoot nanny
0: is? Is it a party, like a wild party? <laughs> well, it's a
2: musical party. It's uh, everybody gets together. It's uh, and plays their kind of traditional or country songs for the most part, and a good time was had by all. There's probably corn liquor and a washtub bass.
3: Bob, have you ever attended a hootenanny?
2: (laughs) Yeah, my synagogue used to have them all (laughs) the time. I'm going to tell you something. Our Purim hootenanny was the best (laughs) on the whole main line.
3: Well, you joke, but, you know, I mean, think about all the Jews like Bob Dylan who are so active in the folk music movement, you know. I wouldn't be surprised if there was You know, it's
0: so funny that you bring up Bob Dylan— Ben, because I have been listening to Bob Dylan's early albums lately on Spotify. Something came over me in recent weeks, and I was just like, I need more Bob Dylan in my life. I haven't listened to him in a long time. And they're so good, but it's so strange to reconcile that sound with this bar mitzvah Jewish kid from the Midwest.
2: The whole Bob Dylan phenomenon just doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't have predicted it. No. <laughs> but uh, I guess you're right, Ben. He probably performed at any number of Jute Nannies in the early part of
3: his career. Jute nanny, very nice. You might recall Bob a television show called Hootenanny from back. I do remember in the 60s. It. Bob Dylan never appeared on that show, a show that started in 1963, right, when he was kind of really at the height of his filky phase. He was boycotting that show, Hoot Nanny, along with other prominent folkies like Joan Baez and Peter Paul and Mary, and so forth. Phil Oaks well, Phil Oaks, yeah, Phil Oaks didn't go on, and Trio didn't go on, so there were all these uh, acts were boycotting because the show refused to have on Pete Seeger, who was still being blacklisted because he was too lefty, yeah. Seeger was called up to the House Un-American Committee's activity in 1955, refused to name names very much like the Hollywood Ten. But by 1963, that was kind of over. And yet ABC, who broadcast Hootenanny, was too scared to have this lefty on the show. Bob Dylan even mentions it in a song. I don't know if you, in your Dylan listening Mike, you come across a song talking John Birch paranoid blues. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some references to Hootenanny, and if you listen to some, you know, live versions of that performance, he actually uses that word.
0: John Birch, of course, a reference to the John Birch Society,
2: which was a far right fringe extremist movement, which I would say is just to the left of the average Republican uh, presidential hopeful at the moment. <laughs> right.
0: Things have shifted a little, little bit. the
2: old days when the fringe was out on the fringe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was sitting home alone and I started to sweat. I figured they was in my television set. I peeked behind the picture frame and got a shock from my feet that hit my brain. And reds did it. The ones on the hood nanny.
3: So, yeah, Hootenanny, the show that ABC was putting on, was this very sanitized version of what the folk music scene was like starting in 1963, minus all of the left-wing politics that might get in the way.
2: Saturdays really sing when you swing to ABC. Here are the limelighters to invite you to join your favorite folk singers on Hootenanny.
3: There's a Hootenanny coming every week on ABC, starring folk. But the thing that was super ironic about the fact that they wouldn't have Pete Seeger on the show Hootenanny was Pete Seeger was probably the person most responsible for bringing that word into common American usage. Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie were both closely linked to that word in the folk scene going all the way back to the 1940s.
2: Did it derive from the Appalachian traditional music culture or was it created out of whole cloth for the kind of the labor-friendly lefty folk
3: scene that developed over the next 20 years? So if we're talking about the word hootenanny, how far back do you think it goes? We already know 1940s, it becomes associated with Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, but uh, how far back, earlier than that, would you guess this word nanny can be found?
0: I'm going 1800s on this one. I know I was reluctant to dip into the 1800s on our last two words. I was right with boondoggle. I was wrong with humdinger. That actually went back to 1883, I believe, if I remember correctly. Right. right. I'm going to the 1800s here, but I'm going to stay in the latter half of the 1800s. Bob, any guesses?
2: I'll stay where Mike is, but I'm going to isolate it to eastern Kentucky
3: <laughs> in
2: some place that probably has the word holler attached
3: to it. <laughs> Do you think they have a lot of hooting and hollering wherever this uh, word got made? You Just what, saying. That your, okay. Well, it may go back that far, but certainly not in the written record. And in the sort of the cluster of different meanings that developed around this word, the earliest that I've been able to find is actually 1906, It's interesting because it appears in a book in 1906, which is actually describing events much older than that. It was a historical novel by a writer named Richard T. Wiley, and the name of the book was Sim Green, A Narrative of the Whiskey Insurrection. So wait, this is fiction? Yeah, a historical novel about the Whiskey Rebellion, which took place in the 1790s. The writer Richard T. Wiley, he was a newspaper man in Western Pennsylvania. He was apparently the dean of the newspaper men in the Monongahela Valley, <laughs> known far and wide throughout the valley. <laughs> also just he was a kind of a local historian, so he had a lot of knowledge about the whiskey rebellion because Western Pennsylvania was really the flashpoint. What happened was the u s government, under George Washington as president, decided they were going to put this tax on all distilled spirits. This was Hamilton's idea. He said this would help prevent the national debt from blowing up. And so they announced this tax. And especially in Western Pennsylvania, people just erupted in protest, lots of sort of civil disobedience, fighting against the local authorities, sometimes violently. And so Washington had to actually suppress this rebellion. So Wiley, the writer, creates this character named Sim Green, who's a very colorful fellow, uses lots of colorful language. And there's one scene where he is recounting what happened when one of the sort of local officials was looking for a young man who was involved in the rebellion, and he shows up at the house of the aunt of this guy. She's busy baking in the kitchen. And so this is the way that Sim Green describes what happened. He said, when I got there, I should say that this is all in uh, dialect writing, so, you know. These are my favorite passages that you read, Ben, because you do such (laughs) a great
0: job. (laughs) You really, you really get a I motive.
3: Try, I try, you know. Let's hear it. When I got thar, she was looking hotter in her oven and was a-shaking that caniplicon at the lummox. <laughs> okay, so already it's like, what is he talking about? And in fact, <laughs> someone who's listening to him says, shaking what? You know, the word lummox we know is like an oaf, but what the heck is a caniplicon? And then Sim Green continues, that hoot nanny that she shovels her bread with, the long-handled majigger, you know. And then the light dawns on his interlocutor. who says, oh, the oven peel? An oven peel being one of those, you know, flat wooden sort of shovel type things that you use for getting bread out of the oven or these days probably pizza. Pizzas, yeah. And then Sim Green says, yes, I guess that's what they call it. I've always been used to Dutch oven bacon and don't know much about these newfangled curdoodlements. All right, we will get back to caniplacons and curdoodlements
0: in just a sec. But first... Lexicon Valley is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
1: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s.
2: Have you listened to it yet?
1: Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up... Extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes.
0: So there are a number of words in this historical novel that are being used to denote a thingamajig, it seems. A thingamajig. Right.
3: Exactly. We've got caniplicon, which is, I think, very just specific to this book. I've never seen that anywhere else. We have hootenanny. We have majigger. And kerdoodlement is another you know, fun like one. like <laughs> Yeah, it's a good one.
2: If I ever start a company, especially one that is shadowy and exercises hidden power over the politics of the world, it's definitely going to be called Kniplikon.
3: (laughs) It does sound kind of evil, but this was tapping into that American tradition of making funny sounding words that sound like they come from sort of classical elements, but to describe just a thingamajig. So Richard T. Wiley,
0: the author, is putting this dialogue in the mouths of people who are ostensibly living in the 1700s. Yeah. In which case, Hootenanny might be anachronistic.
3: I think there are actually lots of anachronisms in here. I don't think that Wiley was really trying to be very careful in terms of, you know, making sure that the language was appropriate for the 1790s, but he wanted to make it sound colorful, and he certainly did with all those funny-sounding words.
2: This could be the linguistic Equivalent of Tony Curtis wearing a wristwatch in Spartacus or something.
3: (laughs) Right. Well, I think what really gives it away is that the, the family in this novel, they were driving Model T's, right? (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny you should mention Model Ts because some of the very early examples actually have to do with automobiles. Here's an example from an advertisement from 1910, not for a Ford Model T, but from another automaker. Haynes Automobile Company of Kokomo, Indiana ran an ad and it talked about the troubles that people have with their cars back in 1910. Some of the ad copy reads that the kabotany, K-O-B-O-D-N-Y, the Kabotany drops out of the Hootinaddy and they can't seem to get the damn thing back again. This ad promised that if you bought the Hanes Model 19 for $2,000, there would be no kabotany and no hootenady. Wait, so it seems to me as though
0: it's impossible... And maybe you'll provide evidence to the contrary. But it's impossible to break these various words apart into their components, that
3: these are just like nonsense syllables strung together. Is that not the case? Well, you know, you can make some conjectures about where the bits and pieces came from. You know, we have hoot or hoop in that first syllable for a lot of these words. And certainly, as Bob was suggesting, hootin' and hollerin', or, you know, hoop sounds like whoopin' it up. These are raucous words. And so it would make sense that, you know, they would extend to things that are kind of noisy. And in fact, you know, we talked about it being sort of a thingamajig as part of your car in those early cars. But actually, also early on, people started calling their cars, especially if it was a sort of a broken down jalopy, they'd call it a hoot nanny. And maybe there the idea is, you know, the hoot is the sound of the car horn. So that meaning was floating around at the same time as the other ones I mentioned. And I can go on and on talking about all the different ways that these hootenanny words show up to refer to everything from locomotives to noise-making machines. You could say, get off your hootenanny, you know, as a kind of a euphemism. It was really an all-purpose word.
2: You know it would be swell? If, having established that hootenanny was itself a bit of a hootenanny, a linguistic thingamajig, it would be interesting if we could see how it got to its more or less contemporary meaning about a a musical ensemble or or a performance of a, a number of musical ensembles thrown together in a similar sort of haphazard way Yes. as the nonsense word hootenanny suggests. That might be fun.
0: Are you asking Ben to connect some dots here, Bob? Yeah, I'm doing <laughs> <I'm> Okay, <laughs>
3: let's connect some dots. Let's connect some dots. Okay, so we've got all these different meanings starting from those old whatchamacallit type meanings to all sorts of things that very often have to do with something noisy, something enjoyable, something raucous. And a folklorist named Peter Tammany wrote a terrific article about this word in a journal called Western Folklore in 1963, right at the time when everybody was talking about this word. It was on TV. Everybody wanted to know where it came from. And he traced its whole history. And he gave, you know, all the different meanings that we discussed. But then he also noted that in parts of the, the Midwest, like, say, Indiana, Hootenanny could specifically refer to a kind of a party that you would just have on a kind of an improvised basis. So he says, in the Midwest, it denominated an impromptu party. To an Oklahoma grandmother, it indicated a kitchen sweat, the most informal of parties. Now, a kitchen sweat is a great American regionalism for a party. In those days, the kitchen, of course, was the hottest room in the house, Especially in those cold months, so if you were going to have a party, you wanted to get some dancing in. Uh, you would do it in the kitchen. you'd have to uh, you know move the tables and chairs and everything out of the way, but you'd have a nice big uh, dance floor there in the kitchen, But because it was so hot, you'd end up sweating through your clothes. And so these parties were often called kitchen sweats. So in Oklahoma, a Hootenanny nanny was like a kitchen sweat to a Texan. It was a spur of the moment ruckus in Ohio. It was associated with periodic events such as apple butter making and slaughtering, the gaiety connected with all-day large farm or communal enterprises.
2: I hereby apologize to residents of New York State, Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, West Virginia, (laughs) eastern Tennessee, eastern Kentucky, and the entire Appalachian range for assuming, for assuming that this um, jalopy of a word (laughs) <laughs> came from uh, the side of one of their roads i uh, there are no words to sufficiently express my shame but
0: it's still not clear though how it goes from a car part or a doodad or a thingamajig to a party the party is perhaps something that spur of the moment feels like a kind of ad hoc get together and maybe there is some shared quality there. Of thrown togetherness. Of yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, right. Random assemblageness. Random assemblageness.
3: I think that's wonderfully said. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I think the, the randomosity does play a big part in this. And also that hoot. Again, the hooting and the hollering, as Bob said earlier. People raising a ruckus wherever they might be. Let's have a party. What is it? It's a hootin' or hootin' daddy or you know all the various other <laughs> variants that people might have been using regionally.
0: Right, a hooting daddy, a hooting nanny, a hooting
3: granny, a hooting—it's <laughs> some member of the family is <laughs> really loud. So one place that this word was being used to describe a party, a very sort of informal one, was Indiana, and the key figure in this story is a fellow who grew up in Terre Haute, Indiana, named Terry Pettis. So Terry Pettis grew up there in Indiana, and then he ended up moving out west to Washington State. He was a journalist and a newspaper editor, and actually he was very involved with sort of local left-wing causes. He was a bit of an activist there in Seattle. So he was the editor of a newspaper called the Washington New Dealer. And so what happened was in 1940... There was a fundraiser, kind of a social event that was supposed to raise money for the local Democratic Party, and they weren't sure what to call it because the gathering that they had planned wasn't just simply a dance, it wasn't just simply a dinner. They were going to do all of that and then combine other entertainment. There was going to be sort of like an improv satirical group that was going to perform and all sorts of other activities that they needed a word for that would sort of encompass all of the fun stuff they had planned there in July 1940. Let's take another short break. Lexicon Valley is also brought to you by Texture.
0: Texture is an app that you can download on your phone or tablet that gives you access to more than 150 magazines. Now, What do I mean by access? Well, you can read full issues of any of the magazines available on Texture, including back issues. I've said before that it's like having the entire newsstand not just on your phone, but on a single app on your phone. So I will open my Texture app right now, and I can, if I'd like, read all of National Geographic, for example, or I can pick and choose individual stories as if I had the actual print copy of the magazine right here in my hands. I'm looking at the table of contents for the current issue of Rolling Stone, and I will definitely read this Q&A with Roger Waters. I will probably read the cover story about Adele. I will probably not read this story about presidential candidate Martin O'Malley. Sorry, O'Malley. But it's that simple. Texture is offering Lexicon Valley listeners a free trial right now if you go to Texture. Dot .com slash lexicon. Full access to more than 150 of the world's magazines, from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. For a free trial, go to texture.com slash lexicon. Okay, the Washington New Dealer is throwing a fundraising party for the Democrats, and they need to come up with a name for it.
3: So the words that they thought might work for this event were either hootenanny, which Terry Pettis suggested because it was a word from his childhood growing up in Indiana, or a wingding. And they went with hootenanny instead of wingding then for their big blowout party. The first advertisement of one of these hootenannies, which appeared in that paper that he edited, the Washington New Dealer, it said, the New Dealer's midsummer hootenanny, you might even be surprised. Dancing, refreshments, door prizes, uncertainty. I don't think I so want I, to go. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get at one of those hootenannies. You may be beheaded. <laughs> <laughs> well, one aspect of the uncertainty is that they often had sort of special guests show up. And this was such a big success that they had another one the following year in 1941. They sort of made special guests, arrest.
2: you mean like Pete Seeger or gonorrhea? What? What, <laughs> what is the uncertainty we're discussing?
3: Definitely Pete Seeger, I can't speculate about the gonorrhea. <laughs> but but in fact, in nineteen forty-one, young Pete Seeger and young Woody Guthrie were going through the Pacific Northwest. They were kind of, you know, busking along, performing in various places, and they got invited to perform at that Hootenanny in nineteen forty-one. You know, they weren't so famous yet, they were just starting to make a name for themselves as the almanac singers, so they performed under that name and They apparently had a really great time. It was a big blowout. (laughs) And they brought the word back with them, back to New York City. Hmm. So while Pete
0: Seeger didn't coin the word, he performed at this second annual variety show that Terry Pettis had dubbed a hootenanny, and he latched onto the word.
3: Yes, both Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger thought this was a wonderful word and that they should call their get-togethers back in New York hootenannies, And so they immediately started using that word, and it immediately actually really became a famous word, thanks to them, in the 1940s.
0: Wow. So you're right. How ironic, then, in 1963, that Pete Seeger should be banned from the television show of the same name.
3: So it's funny, because this word sort of became famous when it became associated with these awesome shindigs that were being thrown in New York, they were getting press attention. And so back in uh, 1946, actually, Time magazine ran a story about the Hootenannies, and they asked Woody Guthrie, where does this word come from? And I think Woody Guthrie is a good example of an unreliable narrator. We were talking about Bob Dylan. I think this was one of the things that Dylan uh, borrowed from Woody Guthrie. Just if you're asked a question, make up a good story. Right, (laughs) a flair for fiction. Yes. So here was the story that Woody Guthrie told Time Magazine in 1946. He says, we was playing for the lumber workers union. We was singing around in the shingle mills. There was a lady out west, out there in the lumber camp, and her name was Annie. And so every time they'd have a song fest, Annie would out shout all of them. So people got to call her Hooten Annie. But the name got spread all over. And so out there, when they were going to have a shindig, they call it Hooten Annie. Wow. He just lied. He just made (laughs) up a story. He knew perfectly well, you know, that it came from Terry Pettis. And Pete Seeger has talked about this many times, about how they came across this word, how Terry Pettis explained that it was this, you know, word he knew from growing up in Indiana. He knew perfectly well, but he just obviously went with the better story about Hooten Annie.
0: But it must have been premeditated, right? Because (laughs) I feel like he had that in his pocket. He was waiting to trot it out.
2: This triggers a very bad memory for me, and this may be a bit of a digression, but I'll share it anyway. Way back in about 1983, when I was a business columnist at USA Today, I did a story about a woman named Faith Popcorn, who was some sort of bullshit futurist. I asked her where her name came from, and she spun this tale about Papa Carne and her Italian grandfather in Ellis Island. (laughs) I don't know. Some baloney. Come to discover, years later, her name was something like Cornblatt or some damn thing. And I didn't think it was charming and, oh, that faith, kind of like, oh, Woody, you, you go on. I thought, this woman's a fucking liar, and I'm a terrible reporter because I passed along her lies verbatim. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm still mad about it, and that's, uh, what, uh, 33 years ago. So should I be forgiving of Woody for this fabulism or um, or is he just a liar?
3: <laughs> Time magazine might have done their due diligence and maybe asked around and said, uh, is this real? But I guess because it was Woody Guthrie and he was Mr. Folk Music, they just sort of accepted it. So
2: he told a folk tale about the derivation of a folk music term. Very fitting.
0: All right, well, tell us all about your hootenannies at at slate.com. That's at slate.com. You can read more about the word hootenanny at Ben's word roots column at vocabulary.com, where Ben is the executive editor. You can follow Lexicon Valley on Twitter, at lexiconvalley, and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. Andy Bowers is our executive producer.
2: All right, boys, we done here?
0: We are done.
2: All right, later,
1: Gator. We should figure out what kind of deal this
3: is. I mean, is it a gathering, a shindig, or a hootenanny?
1: What's the difference?
3: Well, gathering is brie, mellow song stylings shindig dip, less mellow song stylings per perhaps a large amount of malt beverage, and hoot nanny. Well, it's chock full of hoot, just a little bit of nanny.